0: Another thrilling adventure as Superman. This is episode number 11 for the show, and after our detour into the newspaper's last episode, this time out we're heading back to the world of comics for Action Comics number 10. My name is Michael Bradley. I, I guess it would be helpful if I introduced myself. Um, I'm your host, and I want to thank everyone for joining me for another episode. I hope that you're all doing okay. The last couple weeks have been pretty hectic with me, with extra work at my job and some family issues that have come up, but I'm doing pretty good. I have also uh, spent quite a bit of time over the last few weeks in the uh, planning stages for a new project that I'm involved in. I really can't say too much more about it right now, but hopefully announcements will be forthcoming soon. I don't, um, I don't really have too much else to say by way of news or announcements. Just as a reminder, if you happen to miss last episode, I appeared on an episode of Charlie Niemeyer's Superman in the Bronze Age. You can find Charlie's site at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. I was on episode 14, which discussed the Superman comics from the month of October 1971. So I highly encourage you to not only check out that, but all of Charlie's back episodes, because... Charlie puts together a good show, and if you enjoy hearing about Superman's Golden Age adventures, then you might like hearing about his Bronze Age ones as well. So, once again, that address is supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Alright, so, Action Comics number 10. It was released sometime around February 7th, 1939. The cover, with its March 1939 date and 10 cent price, once again features Superman. This is his third appearance on the cover of the book, and it's a much stronger cover than the last one. Um, the art is by Joe Shuster, and it shows Superman leaping through the sky and battling a fighter plane. It's probably inspired by a similar scene that happened in Action Comics number 2. Superman is punching the front propeller of the plane, and its left wing is already shattered into pieces. It isn't the strongest or most iconic Superman cover, you know, there's no uh, background to speak of other than the crosshatching from the inking, but it's a fairly dynamic image, and it, it's really great to see Superman back on the cover of the book again. The Superman story inside was written, as always, by Jerry Siegel and illustrated by Joe Shuster. The Grand Comic Book Database also again credits Paul Aretta as chipping in on the art, and Vin Sullivan is credited as editor. Our splash panel in this comic is very iconic. It shows Superman mid-leap, sort of hovering in mid-air with the city spread out below him. Most fans, with even a passing interest in comics, will recognize this image as the cover of Superman number 1. But wait, we haven't gotten to Superman number 1 yet, you say. As a matter of fact, no, we haven't. That won't come for another three months in comics time. From what I've read... And we'll talk about it more when we get there. But it's my understanding that Superman number one was thrown together pretty quickly. Knowing that, it's not as surprising as one might think, but it's still interesting. And I'm sure it would come to you know come as a surprise to a lot of fans that the cover was lifted from a previously published comic. The logo type is more refined in this issue than we've ever seen it. I don't know if this is still Schuster drawing it or if this is an early rendering by Irish Snap. But it's clearly not as crude as the previous versions. The intro text reads, Leaping over skyscrapers, running faster than an express train, springing great heights and distances, lifting and smashing tremendous weights, possessing an impenetrable skin. These are the amazing physical attributes which Superman, savior of the helpless and oppressed, avail himself as he battles the forces of evil and injustice. So now he's not just the champion of the oppressed, he's their savior. And I don't know about you, but I kind of like that. The story here has been alternatively titled The Corey Town Chain Gang and Superman Goes to Prison. With a title like that last one, you might think it has something to do with the storyline that ran through the previous two issues of Action Comics. That storyline, for those who are just joining us, it, had, uh, it ran through issues 8 and 9, and it dealt with Superman tearing down a row of tenements, in order to force the government to build better housing. This caused him to be branded as a public enemy by the police, and in issue 9, we had a hijinks-filled episode with two bumbling detectives chasing after the bounty on Superman's head. So, when you hear Superman goes to prison, you might think, hey, they catch Superman, and they're going to, you know, toss him in a slammer. What a great way to follow up on the story they've been building, right? Unfortunately, should you think that, you would be wrong. Wrong! No! This story has absolutely no connection to the previous, and there's not even a reference now, or forevermore, about Superman's status as a one man. That plot is just simply dropped. And unfortunately, that's not my only problem with this story, as we are going to see. The story begins with a call being made to the still nameless editor of the Daily Star, alerting them to a news tip about at a certain address. The chief admits that it's probably just a crank call, but sends Kent to look at it. Thankfully, the star has both the staff and the funds to send reporters on wild goose chases, because as it happens, it turns out that there actually is something to this. When Clark arrives at the address, he's hurried inside by the man that called. The man proceeds to tell Clark that he's got a story that, that the world simply must hear. A tale of shocking terror, horrifying cruelty, unbelievable brutality... No, it's not an EC horror comic. After making Clark promise that his anonymity is secure, the man rips open his shirt Superman style. Well, we've not really seen Superman do the shirt rip thing yet, but maybe this is where he got the idea? Anyway, the man rips open his shirt to reveal his chest covered in welts and scars. He explains that he received them under the whip as part of the Quarrytown Chain Gang, and that it's only one of the many forms of torture the prisoners there suffer. Starvation, sweat boxes, crowded living quarters, Justin Bieber videos. Oh, oh. oh, oh. oh, oh. you know, you love me. Yeah. I know you care. Oh, oh. Just when- <laughs> Sorry, folks, I've got to stop right there. I like to have fun on this podcast, but there's some jokes that even I won't subject you guys to. So, with that said, back to the show. He explains that he received them under the whip as part of the Quarrytown Chain Gang, and that it's only one of the many forms of torture the prisoners there suffer. Starvation, sweatboxes, crowded living quarters. How does this guy know all this? Because he suffered these as well, before he escaped. He then reveals his identity as Walter Crane, escaped fugitive. He tells Clark that the Daily Star needs to print a story about the terrible conditions at the prison so that the public will call for reform. So Clark agrees, and since he clearly has a disdain for the law in general, doesn't bother taking the escaped fugitive back to prison, or any authorities in general for that matter. Hopefully Crane isn't a serial killer or anything... Cut to the prison where we find prison superintendent Wyman delivering 40 lashes to the back of an inmate that claimed he was too sick to work. After some colorful dialogue describing the superintendent's murderous frenzy of sadistic hate, the abuse is interrupted when the governor happens to show up at the prison. Wyman tells his lackey to hide the prisoner and keep him that way until the governor is gone. Wyman puts on his happy, happy, joy, joy face and greets his, quote, good friend, unquote, but Governor Bixby reveals the reason for his visit showing Wyman the article in the star. This ruffles Wyman's feathers, and he throws a little tantrum, calling the article a BLASTED DIRTY LIE. He offers the governor the chance to speak to the prisoners himself, and to ease his conscience. He escorts the governor over to a group of men busting rocks, and tells them if they have any issues with their treatment, now is the chance to speak up. One prisoner starts to, but another stops him, warning that Wyman will kill him, slowly, if he does. With his concern squelched, the governor takes his leave. Shortly, Wyman's lackey informs him that the prisoner he was abusing earlier has died from his wounds. But Wyman doesn't care. There's a newspaper story to deal with, after all. After some mustache twirling, Wyman and his lackey decide that Crane must be responsible, and Wyman decides to pay a visit to the star himself. Two days later, Crane shows up at the Daily Star offices. Yeah, two days later. Which kind of makes you wonder how an article in the Star is going to do much to affect policy at a prison that's, you know, a thousand miles away. But, whatever. Wiley claims that the story is libelous and demands that they run a retraction. But the editor says that they got it from a good source and they are standing by the story. Wyman presses more and demands to speak to Clark. And the editor admits that he can oblige him on that point. So, Clark comes in and Wyman bullies him a bit. Clark refuses to reveal his source... But Wyman says that he knows it was Crane. He then reminds Clark that harboring a fugitive is a crime, and Clark could likewise be tossed in jail if he doesn't reveal Wyman's whereabouts. After a helpful bit of narration that Clark is keeping to his cowardly persona, Clark blurts out Crane's address. Don't! Wyman and Clark go to the address, and as soon as Crane opens the door, WHAM! Wyman punches him dead in the face. Wyman gives, gives him the business, not just for escaping, but also for smearing him in the paper. He then grabs him and tells him there's a sweatbox with his name on it back at the prison. Crane pleads with Clark, who only who can only hang his head and apologize. Another punch to the face from Wyman, and I guess Wyman takes him back to Quarrytown. It doesn't really say, but the next time we see Crane, he's at the prison. Later, back at the Daily Star's offices, Clark is moping about. His co-workers all shun him. Not Jimmy Olsen threatens to quit if Clark isn't fired. Lois is cruel to Clark, telling him to stay away from her. Okay, well, Lois pretty much acts like herself here. But the point is that all of Clark's co-workers are upset that he revealed his source. So, the boss corners Clark and chews him out for a bit for revealing a source. But Clark explains that he had to reveal Crane's identity. He says it is impossible to convict Wyman without proof, so he had to risk the scorn of his co-workers that and allow Crane to be caught so that Wyman would become more confident than ever that he's untouchable. Clark proposes going undercover at the prison to get photos of the conditions and the tortures to finally seal Wyman's doom once and for all. The boss admires Clark's moxie, wishes him the best of luck, and tells him to get out there and get that story. Later that evening, Clark switches to his Superman clothes and runs to Corytown. The next morning, Clark, in a disguise, is tooling about Quarrytown in a junk car that he somehow purchased sometime between late night and early morning. He happens to see Wyman driving down the road headed towards him. He intentionally rams Wyman head on, thankfully not killing him in the process. As Wyman gets out, Clark picks a fight with him, saying that it was his fault, then giving him the good taste of knuckle sandwich when Wyman argues the point. A policeman on a cute little motor scooter that I'm pretty sure he stole from one of the clowns back in issue number seven Happens to drive by, and Wyman demands that Clark be arrested for assault and battery and bad driving. Yes, bad driving. If people could really be arrested for bad driving, there would be a whole lot less automobiles on the road, I'll tell you that much. Anyway, uh, Clark, who we find out is going by the name Tom Daly, is taken to the court in Corrytown, where justice is a mockery. Justice moves as swift in Corrytown as it does in San Monte because Clark, or Tom, or Superman, whoever, Is immediately sentenced to six months in prison as part of the chain gang. Clark mocks the sentence, and Wyman says he'll have to beat that oneriness out of him. As Clark arrives at the chain gang, Wyman orders that he be immediately taken to the stocks. More than an hour later, much to the surprise of Wyman and his lackey, Clark isn't showing any signs of being tired or in pain. Clark smirks and tells Wyman it's awfully nice to let him just relax all comfortable like in the stocks while the rest of the prisoners are slaving away. This gets Wyman's dander up, and Wyman demands that he be let loose and taken to the rock pile. Wyman hands Clark a hammer and tells him that he's got a half an hour to smash a huge pile of boulders. Five minutes later, with minimal effort, Clark has finished the job. After some smart remarks, Wyman gives Clark another pile of rocks, this one twice as big, and Superman smashes through those just as effortlessly. Then politely asks Wyman if he could have some more rocks. There's a quick panel that show the inmates are generally unhappy with the food, and the next thing you know it's evening. After everyone has gone to bed, Clark sneaks out, gets by the guards, and leaps over the wall. He then runs back to Corytown, puts on his costume and grabs a camera, and runs back to the camp. It doesn't say where in Corytown he stashed his stuff. Maybe he got a hotel room or something. I I don't know. It's it doesn't say. Anyway, once back at the camp, Superman begins snapping photos when suddenly he notices a figure dashing across the prison yard. It's Crane, making another escape attempt. The guards fire at him and actually do hit him, but all the gunshot wound does is help him by knocking him over the wall. Because the next thing you know, Crane is on his feet and running for the safety of a nearby swamp. Wyman releases the hounds, literally, by setting loose a pack of bloodhounds to track down Crane. The sound of the animals chasing after Crane distracts him, and he winds up getting stuck in a bog of quicksand. Superman, who had also followed Crane, shows up and wades into the muck. As Superman pulls him free, Crane faints, so Superman slings him over his shoulder and trudges through the bog back onto solid ground. Just as they reach the surface, the lead bloodhound attacks Superman, but Superman ducks, leaving the dog to jump into the quicksand. Superman then ignores the dog's cries, leaving it to die for, you know, only doing what it had been trained to do and runs back to the camp with Crane under his arm. When they get back to the camp, Superman just leaves Crane, who has now been shot and traumatized and who knows what else, in the middle of the prison yard for Wyman to find. It's part of the plan, sure, but it doesn't seem like a particularly good plan because later we find that Wyman has found Crane tied into a post and is flogging him while Superman hides in the bushes taking pictures. (laughs) At least Superman feels some remorse at this point because he says he hates to stand idly by, but, quote, it's for the best. (sighs) Anyway, after the flogging is done, Wyman ignores Crane's plea for mercy and food and tosses him into the sweatbox and begins taunting him with a plate of food. And the manner that he's taunting him in can really only be described as stopping just short of sticking out his tongue and yelling, Na-na-na-na-na-na! Thankfully, for all our sakes, Superman is on hand to put an end to this tomfoolery, and hopefully wrap this story up pretty soon. He grabs Wyman, face plants him into the plate of food, then frees Crane and puts Wyman into the box in his place. The next thing you know, Superman is streaking through the night, well, I should probably say running through the night, Superman is running through the night, and for no less than the second time in his career, breaks into the governor's mansion this time going so far as to abduct the, the governor with no explanation and take him to the camp. He muzzles the governor, telling him basically to shut up and listen. He then tells Wyman he's going to plug the air holes in the sweat box and let him suffocate if he doesn't fess up to his crimes. Since we're within three panels of the story's end and there's no more time left for posturing, Wyman confesses and promises never to torture again. Superman then rips the door off the sweatbox, leaving the governor to tend to Wyman's future and departs. Later, back at the Daily Star, the editor apologizes for misjudging Clark and saying his efforts have helped to convict Wyman and clean up the conditions at the prison. And everyone lives happily ever after except for the inmate that died, the ones that were tortured and traumatized, Crane, and the poor dog that Superman left to die in the swamp. (sighs) Okay, I don't have a problem with this story in its basic premise. Prisoners are prisoners, and while I don't think they need to be staying in a state-funded hotel, they should be treated fairly, or at the very least, humanely. So, that's fine. Superman cleaning up a corrupt prison or chain gang, I'm okay with that. So, we still have Superman as a social crusader, righting the wrongs of society, you know, uh, putting an end to social ills and injustices, sticking up for the little guy, even if they're not completely on the right side of the law themselves. And don't get me wrong, I like that. It's just the way that he goes about it here is... odd. Going undercover at the prison is fine, but why not go to the governor first and say, look, we have reason to believe Wyman is abusing his authority, we want to go undercover, yada yada yada. What I get from the dialogue between the governor and Wyman early in the issue is, the governor's not corrupt, he's just too trusting of how things look on the surface. On that note, though, I think it's funny that after, what, ten issues, and he's broken into the governor's mansion twice? But, again, there's got to be an easier way to bring these things to his attention. Sure, the first time in Action Comics number one, there was a time issue, but here, the threat wasn't as imminent. Then there's Superman leaving Crane in the prison yard. Yes, I know it was for the greater good, or whatever, but here's a guy that's been tortured, shot, traumatized by dogs not to mention being unconscious since he fainted, and Superman leaves him out as bait for a trap. Again, there's got to be a better way for Superman, the man of steel, the guy that's impervious to bullets and all that, to deal with these problems. And I'm bothered by the fact that Superman just left the dog to die. It's a dog. He was doing what he'd been trained to do, sniff out escaped prisoners. And Superman just leaves him to die in the quicksand. That's ah uh, this it just seems like a very heavy-handed story. It reminds me a lot of the Blakely Mind disaster story from Action Comics number 3 in its heavy-handedness. This was a you know, as overall a better story than that one, but the bluntness of it really weighed it down. There's absolutely no subtlety whatsoever to Wyman. Not that the villains so far have been incredibly nuanced, but <laughs> this guy is just Evil McEvilson. On the brighter side, Siegel seemed to inject a little more personality and character into the Daily Star's editor this time. That's a character that's basically just been warming the seat so far, and I can't help but wonder if this is the beginning of making him into a supporting cast member. It's going to be uh, a little while yet before he gets a name, but I really don't remember what's done with the character between then and now, so it's going to be something to keep an eye on. Schuster's art isn't the strongest here, but it's passable. He got to draw some different things this time out, with the automobile wreck and some changes in scenery, etc. The dogs look a lot more dog-like than the pony-like creature that was supposed to be a dog in the circus issue. A couple of the panels give me the impression that he was experimenting or wanting to experiment with some different angles and more creative panels. This issue, I think, really shows that the eight-panel grid forced on them Hurts the issue. The sequence where Superman saves Crane from the quicksand would have been a lot more dynamic had it just been a, a couple small panels and a larger splash, rather than spread out over eight panels. Overall, I think the art just needs tightened up some in this particular issue. I'm not sure that if, if it's an inking problem or what, there's just something not quite on about it, and I haven't quite put my finger on it. Superman spends quite a lot of time out of costume this issue, but for the few pages that we do see him in it, the shield is the inverted yellow triangle with the big red S in the center. So that's two issues in a row. I'm not going to go so far as to say that we're going to start seeing more consistency in the costume design from here on out, because I know that there's still a lot of inconsistency and changes up ahead, but two issues is two issues. And you know, speaking of the costume, that's another thing. It seems like the stories where Superman spends more time out of the costume are the ones that are a lot more dull. I don't mean ones where he's acting as Clark Kent, but like the mind disaster or the football episode or this one, they just seem bland. Is that just a kid in me wanting to see Superman tearing it up or are you guys feeling that too? I don't know what it is. The final panel of the last page is another nice self-promotional ad. It's similar to the one that was in Action Comics number 9, but with different art, and this one touts Superman as the strip sensation of 1939 in every issue of Action Comics, and reminds you to tell your friends. Like the last few, there are two reprints for this story, first in Superman the Action Comics Archives, Volume 1, and later in Superman Chronicles, Volume 1. There are no changes in the other features this time out, so we've still got Scoop Scanlon, Pep Morgan, Marco Polo, Tex Thompson, Chuck Dawson, and Zaytara. The art in the Scoop Scanlon story is really good this issue. Uh, Lots of nice uses of blacks and shadows and and tight panels. It kind of makes me wish that DC would have been a bit more open to switching their artists around on the strips, because I really would have liked to have seen what Bill Eli did with Superman, or would have done with Superman. But during this era of comics, the companies were very much about consistency in the look of their characters. And really, that's something that's going to continue up until the Bronze Age. Um, eventually, it turns into more of a house style. You know, they do have uh, a variety of artists, but they all sort of work to create one visual image for the character, and that carries through to all its appearances. Looking through the rest of the issue, there's also another ad for the Siegel and Schuster School of Humor. I talked about that back in episode number seven when the ad first ran. They've recolored the background of the ad this time out to blue, which makes the art pop out a lot more. Unfortunately, it still claims the book is from the creators of Superman, which it isn't. Uh, The other books on the stands around this time were More Fun Comics number 41, which is the final Golden Age Masked Ranger strip from Jim Chambers, It also has the first Flying Fox strip by Terry Gilkinson. This Flying Fox is an aviator, and I'm pretty sure that it has no connection to the Flying Fox that would be created by Roy Thomas uh, in the 80s as a replacement for Batman in the All-Star Squadron. But speaking of Batman, there's also Detective Comics number 25. No Batman in that issue, but we're closing in on his first appearance, so just a couple more issues for that. And finally, there was Adventure Comics number 36 with a great cover by Craig Flessel that shows a jungle explorer fighting a huge boa constrictor. I noticed that issues 34 through 38 all had man versus animal covers, and all were by Flessel except number 34, which was by Fred Gardiner. So I'm not sure if they were going for a theme there or what, but it was as I was looking through them, it made for an interesting series of covers. This issue of Adventure Comics also had the final installment of Golden Dragon. That was a strip by Tom Hickey, which had run since issue number six of the book. So that's a decent length run for this early Golden Age era. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. (laughs) I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at 2 Coming October 31st, 2010, Superman Forever Radio, a new weekly podcast which will focus on Superman and his family of comics, movies, television shows, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and the latest and classic adventures of the Manusville, an in-depth look at a variety of topics throughout Superman's 70-plus years of history. Join host J. David Weider every Sunday for Superman Forever Radio, coming October 31st, 2010. For more information, go to supermanforever.com. Before I go, I want to bring to y'all's attention a few blogs that you might find of interest. A lot of podcasts have sprung up lately that take a chronological look at a particular character or era. There's this show, John Wilson's, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis. There's a couple Spider-Man podcasts out there. There's one for the Legion, uh, and more. If you like this uh, type of examination of comics, go on over to comicsodyssey.blogspot.com. And there, Nathan Moni, and I hope I pronounced that right, has taken on the task of looking at every DC book ever. He started with New Fun, number one, from 1935, and has been going forward issue by issue. These are just capsule reviews of the entire issue, not full plot synopses, but he's going over all the features in each book and looking at the development of the company as a whole. About a week and a half ago, he got to Action Comics number one, so if you're wanting a little more information on the other DC books out around the time of the books I'm covering, be sure to check out Nathan's blog. If you're more of a Marvel fan, there's a couple sites for your attention. First is marvelgenesis.com, where Don Safi has been doing the same thing, but with the silver age of Marvel superhero titles. He started with Fantastic Four number 1 from 1963, and Don's been doing his blog since December 2009, and at present, he's just a few months after the debut of The Avengers and The Uncanny X-Men. As for Golden Age Marvel, there's also unabridgedmarvel.tumblr.com where Hal Phillips started with Marvel Comics number 1 from 1939 and has been going forward. Hal's blog has stalled a bit since the first of the year, but he's promised more postings and there's plenty of archives to keep you busy for a while. So once again, check out all three sites. That's comicsodyssey.blogspot.com for the DC stuff and marvelgenesis.com and unabridgedmarvel.tumblr.com for the Marvel stuff. If you enjoy this show and other similar podcasts, I think you'll enjoy all three sites. Next week on the show, we are heading back to the newspaper for the second storyline from the Superman Daily newspaper strip, and I'll also have the second half of the Spotlight on Jerry Siegel, so I hope you'll come back for both of those. In the meantime, if you have any comments, questions, criticism, or any type of remarks about this episode or the you know the show in general I'd love to hear from you I like feedback and I like hearing your thoughts on the stories you can reach me by email at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com you can also leave comments on the website at greatcrypton.com in the episode postings there you'll also find additional comments uh, images and links pertaining to that issue as well at the site you'll also find a link to the show's Facebook page Like the show on Facebook and you'll get alerts when I post new episodes or have other show-related news to share. If you want to subscribe to the show directly, you can also find links at the site to the RSS feed in iTunes. And if you use iTunes, I do appreciate uh, any and all iTunes reviews because it helps people to find the show and know that it's worth listening to. And I do read those on the show as well, so please leave one if you're able. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thank you again very much for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I'll talk to you later. Goodbye! for reminding you, helps control the pet population. Have your pets spayed or neutered. Good night, everybody! Hear that, folks? Spaying and neutering. Nothing about leaving a dog to die in a swamp.